0: The Lord, the Lord, the Lord be with you, Tim. Help, Tim, Tim, Daddy. We had the. uh, I'll just wait. Tim, Tim. Oh, much better. Thank you. We had the Veterans Day uh, program for the school in here, and it's weird. Like my head, my headset needs to be set like one small click over off otherwise it's crazy loud, but the handheld mic that they use for all the events in here has to be on like one click from the end to actually hear it. So like, there's a lot of margin for error. It's only taken me eight years to figure that out. Um, couple quick announcements. Uh, men's retreat, Pastor Schumacher gave a great plug for it after service uh, this coming weekend. So open to uh, all, guys of all ages. Uh, we'll meet here on Friday evening. And then uh, call it a night, uh, somewhere around 9 or 10 or so, and then we'll come back the next morning for breakfast and a couple of sessions. Uh, really, the speaker is going to be speaking to the, the Psalms and how, really, the Christian, the Christian man, the, the father, husband, can utilize the Psalms in all of his vocations. So um, join us for that. If you can't commit to the whole thing, that's totally cool. Uh, you can still register. We just kind of want to know everything is based around food. Uh, so we want to make sure we have enough food on uh, Friday and, and on Saturday. But it's a great time to, to get to know some more folks and build some community. So you can see the details in the Week at a Glance, and you can sign up there as well. The uh, Thanksgiving Eve Advent and Christmas service times are all up on the website. We mentioned that in the Week at a Glance, so kind of check that out. There's a couple of—basically, um, the, the, time, the times are all the same as they've always been. But like this year, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday— so think about, from your, from your family Christmas Eve experience, it's also a Sunday, your normal Sunday experience, right? So you're going to church on Sunday morning, but it's also Christmas Eve. We're not gonna sing joy to the world. The problem with the church calendar, I mean, I'm not gonna blame 2,000 years of church history. They know what they're doing, but the, the, the inconvenient timing is that as we get to the end of Advent, so the Advent's kind of approaching the return of Christ or the coming of Christ. Remember how the theme of Advent's always, the Lord comes in three ways. He first came in the manger. He continues to come today in the sacraments. He'll come again on the last day. Uh, but so that last Sunday in Advent's like the, the final coming of Jesus on the last day. And that's going to be, that's we're, we're celebrating Advent 4, which is the readings and the hymns of that day on Christmas Eve. So if you come to Christmas Eve expecting Silent Night, you will be disappointed in the morning. So Christmas Eve morning is Advent 4, Christmas Eve, regular Christmas Eve evening is all the, all the hits, right? All the regular, expect all the same readings, all the hymns and all that. I just don't want you to be disappointed. Uh, but, it, but the people who didn't come to Bible study and didn't hear that spiel, I want them to come on Christmas Eve and be disappointed and learn their lesson. <laughs> and then they'll come to Bible class knowing it. Maybe it won't work. But do, do, is that clear? Does do everybody understand where I'm, what I'm getting at there? So it's still great. It's all great stuff. And really, the, a lot of the Advent hymnody, it's, we, we associate it with Christmas anyway. Oh, come, come, Emmanuel, that kind of stuff. But some of the, the last day hymnody is a little bit more of that. Well, to, in fact, today, lo, he cl- comes with cloud descending, which is our closing hymn this morning. That's an Advent hymn, the coming of Christ. And there's like this, unfortunately, we, this, the hymns are simply portraying the, the Bible's description of the last day. And those who are outside of Christ, aren't happy about being outside of Christ on the last day. And the hymns actually confess that, but you know, you're thinking Santa and stockings and we're singing last day stuff, but it'd be a great experience to go through. So hop on the, ro- hop on the roller coaster of Christmas Eve, uh, get that on your, your calendar. Um, Thanks to our Crafter's Paradise. Uh, I haven't heard the numbers on that, but uh, always a great, great event held here yesterday and the youth for raking leaves and all that. Advent tea coming up for the ladies on December 2nd. You can sign up for that already in the Narthex. That's growing in its popularity, so it's a cool thing to check out. And sanctuary decorating is on December 9th. My list of announcements keeps getting longer. We have Too much cool things going on around here. Um, the... Uh, the, kid, the Sunday School Christmas program is gonna start rehearsing at the beginning of December. So I'll be in there with the kids and Pastor Schumacher will be taken over here for the month of December. And then hopefully my goal is to get up to the, the actual, the suffering of Jesus in the crucifixion and we'll pick that up in the new year. So at the start of the new year, we'll hit the cross and the resurrection and then the post-resurrection accounts of Jesus. Uh, picture directory has already started, so um, thanks for those of you, if you had your pictures taken for the directory, there's a few, uh, I think a couple more sh- um, days for pictures, and if you haven't signed up yet, uh, Beth can see if there's any cancellations to work you in. Okay, now, any questions on all that? Very good. So it's, sorry to take so much time with announcements, but the alternative would be that we have nothing cool going on to talk about, and that's kind of boring, so... All right. So last last week, or so last week, we with the celebration of All Saints Day, we talked about the uh, the picture of heaven from Revelation seven. And we kind of took a took a break from our our, our continued study of Luke twenty two. Um, so today we're jumping back into Luke twenty two, beginning with verse twenty eight and following. So the handouts are in the back. Uh, also, um, Beth reminded me today we're installing our new members in the late service. Uh, so our new members who are in here now, could you stand up? Welcome our new members. We got a total of, uh, you can sit down, uh, a, a total of uh, 26 actually with all the kids and the families who, who aren't yet here. And with, in, in, in like an in anticipation for this, to kind of like, you know, to express our great excitement for the new members, we went through all the trouble to get a Costco cake that says congratulations on it. So, doesn't that just say welcome? To be- it's especially effective when you accidentally, when you forget to take uh, the, the cake out of the fridge. So, I forgot to, I forgot to communicate that today. No, it's mine. Uh, so, we just pulled the Costco cake out. It says, congratulations, that's back there. I've been talking it up for a week. So, if you didn't get a piece of cake, if, if, there, was, if, if there weren't enough carbs back there for you already, uh, there's, there's still plenty of carbs and some cake that says congratulations. But, um, but yeah, w- w- welcome to our new members. You've, I'm sure they're all looking familiar to you. They've been coming quite faithfully. So we look forward to having them in our ranks uh, as this body at Bethany for the coming uh, years. All right. Who is the greatest is where we left off last time. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed. So remember, the sun set on Good Friday... So as soon as the sun sets Thursday night, it becomes Good Friday from the Jewish counting of time. So it's Good Friday evening. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He's, 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 he's washing the disciples' feet. And then he's teaching on service and the humility. And then right away, what happens? The disciples start fighting with one another about who's the greatest. And Jesus rolls his eyes, are you kidding me? We talked about this already, but this, we see that we have a lot in common with the disciples and our thirst for power or uh, with, our, with our pride getting in the way. And the disciples too, even on, the, on in, the, in the midst of Jesus teaching on that very thing, they're fighting about who's the greatest. And so Jesus reaches in there and, and teaches how the greatest, verse 26 of chapter 22, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves for who is the greater one, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So the Lord Jesus, right, right before he goes to the cross, he's describing what's about to happen as his service to us. Jesus dying on the cross in service to us. And in that, we're also seeing a picture of what's happening in, in the divine service. So we call worship divine service. So God, divine, serving us. So we come to church not to do anything for God. He does everything for us. We just bring our, it's like a hospital. We bring our diseases. We bring our sicknesses. So we bring our sin, our shame, our brokenness, our despair, our sadness. And Jesus cleans us up. He cleans up our sin, our shame. He sets before us joy, hope, and peace, and then sends us back into this world. That's His divine service to us, and it's all made possible by what's, what's about to happen here on the cross. So verse 28 is where we begin today. Uh, Jesus foretelling the denial, uh, Peter's denial. Verse 28, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging twelve tribes of Israel. Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers Peter said to him Lord I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death Jesus said I tell you Peter the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me 3 times or until you deny 3 times that you know me okay So first with the trials, he's talking to his disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, verse 28. Uh, That word trials there is the same word for temptation. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we're, we're given to see temptation, not just as temptation towards sin. That's certainly our experience of temptation. But it's also whenever there's any kind of trial, any kind of suffering, this too is temptation for us. Why temptation for what? What's the temptation that we face in the midst of suffering? Give up. Why would you give up? Because it doesn't matter anyway. God's not watching over. Boom. God's not watching over. So why? If if I'm suffering, it's it's the classic. Our our sinful flesh, I would argue, is constantly in this, uh, getting tossed around by this dilemma, that we have an all-powerful God, who loves us. And yet we face suffering, right? So the fact is he solved the suffering problem, not in the way that we might expect because we we think we'd maybe handle things differently, right? We just take away the suffering. Jesus solves the suffering problem, not temporary, but eternally, right? He goes to the cross so so that suffering isn't eternal. So death, he transforms death into this gateway into everlasting life. But the way we would have it, we we just can't understand why there's continuing to be suffering now. Why doesn't he just stop it now? And Jesus said, well, I've I've solved the suffering problem, not in the way that you think is best, but in the way that I know is best for you. And so we have the pictures of heaven, like last week in Revelation seven. We have the the guys who are entering into heaven, the the guys who are wearing their white robes and waving their palm branches of victory. And the, the elder asks, John who are these and John says I don't know and, and the guy says these are the ones coming out of what They're coming out of tribulation which means that their life on earth had been in tribulation and yet we think if okay if I really believe in God and God's really there and he really loves me then my life will be great it'd be full of nothing but blessing everything Joel Osteen promised <laughs> God wants to bless you today just get out of the way right well, it just doesn't work that way. My life, especially uh, as those who are baptized, we wear a target on our back for the devil. When does Jesus face the devil's temptations? Immediately after his baptism. So as a Christian, if we, 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 can't, we don't expect that our life is just going to be perfect, but rather we recognize that our life has what the sinful life has, temptations, sufferings, and trials. And everybody suffers and everybody faces trials, and everybody goes through death. But you see how it's even worse in a way for the Christian, I and mean, not just in the sense that they receive it as persecution at times, but because the Christian's sitting there saying, it's, it's like, this may be a bad analogy, so it's, you're, you're experiencing this live, let me think. So you have two kids. One is, a, is an orphan, and one is like your child. And they're both right there, and they're both like, Like in the South, there's these things called fire ants. They don't have them up here, praise the Lord. You know, have anyone ever stepped in a fire ant bed? You know what those are? No one stepped in a fire ant bed? There's ants, but they bite you. And like in tandem, they just like all, it's it's terrible. And then then they just keep biting because they're, by the time they bite you, they're all over your body. And then they send the signal and then they all start biting you. So you're like trying to get ants. So like every time we go to Mississippi, one of the kids steps in ants and then you have like total meltdown, right? So, okay, so you've got two kids, they've both stepped in the bed, uh, and one is your child, and one is not. They're both going through the suffering at the same time, right? So what, what does my child have that the orphan doesn't have? In the midst of that suffering, a, a father. Like, look at dad, what? Help. Help. And now the orphans going to be screaming for help too. And I'm, you know, some of us, you'd all, we'd all do the same thing. we will scoop in and do the best we can to get the ants off of both of them. But as you're going through the suffering, to know there's somebody there is, who's going to help you, that gives you actually hope. But the problem is, to, the, the, where the analogy hits us is that we're all in the ant bed of life. And we actually know we have a father who we know loves us. And yet the, answer, the ants are still there. Remember the problem of Moses in the wilderness with the bronze, the snakes in the wilderness? And God sends the snakes and Moses holds up the bronze serpent. And when anybody gets bit, they can look at the bronze serpent and live. But notice he doesn't hold up the bronze serpent and then it kills all the snakes. He holds up the bronze serpent for people to look at when they get bit by the snake. You see? So, So the Lord doesn't, Take, he doesn't deal with a suffering problem in the way that we, would, that we would think we'd handle it or the way that we might expect, but he does it in his way and the way he knows to be best. And that is a tremendous suffering. That, that itself becomes a temptation for us, a, a temptation toward doubt and despair. Um, so uh, let's see. So he's, you've been with me in my trials, says Jesus to the disciples, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. So, by the way, they're with Jesus in his trials. So as those who are the disciples of Jesus, they share the immediate, the immediate context. They are with Jesus as he's been going through his ministry. But in many ways, as, as the Lord's disciples in this world, we share in the persecution that, that Jesus receives. Remember, as Jesus says the world rejected him. So also the world rejects those who confess him. So we share in the trials of Jesus. But... We also are given the same promise that I assign to you as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. So we, we share in that heavenly kingdom, but not only a heavenly kingdom. So when you think kingdom of heaven, or sorry, when he says my kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, I think, okay, there's like a throne somewhere with lots of gold stuff and like guards and Jesus sitting on a throne with a crown on his head, right? No, that limits it. The kingdom is What? wherever the king is wherever that king goes we have the kingdom expanding right it's like the and this might break down cuz i don't know like international politics as well but you know what's that when when you're like in a foreign the embassy the embassy is technically what land of like the other country right so wherever the wherever the king is we have this embassy of eternity so when, wherever if we're a part of the lord's kingdom that means Wherever he is, he's with us and we are in his kingdom. So his promise of his kingdom is not just a future reality that we anticipate in heaven, but it's actually a promise to us now that he's with us in this world, no matter what we're facing. Uh, that you would verse 30, that you would eat and drink at my table, this heavenly banquet. So that the, heaven, the heavenly picture is often this picture of the heavenly wedding feast. So you would eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So on the one hand, you have the picture of heaven as this heavenly banquet, heavenly throne room, heavenly kingdom, sitting at my table in my kingdom, eating and drinking. But is there a place that's not some kind of like future heaven, heavenly reality that involves eating and drinking and the presence of Jesus? That Jesus just talked about like ten verses ago? His his supper. Take eat, take drink, this is my body given for you. Like he just instituted it. He just this is the immediate context of this. And so he's, given, he's giving the, the disciples, which includes you and me, the promise that he is with us in his kingdom, even as we receive his supper, yet still, still on earth. And then he gives to the disciples, this extra thing, sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When I, so when you think judging the 12 tribes of Israel, do you think positive connotation or negative connotation when you hear judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Negative, negative like obviously. Why does that have to be the case? The judges, like the Old Testament judges, simply to, to be a judge was simply to have authority. And in fact, the judges in the Old Testament are judging evil, but they're also judges for Israel. And what are they doing for Israel all the time? They're like wiping out the bad guys, doing all kinds of cool stuff, saving the day. So to be a judge in the Lord's ways is, is not necessarily condemning unbelieving uh, those who are unbelievers but they are shepherding the new israel that is they're shepherding the lord's church so that's the the disciples role right away right in the as in the in the we're talking a few days from 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 the context here it's a few months from when we're actually going to get there but uh, a few a few days from from what's about to happen, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he's going to set the disciples, his apostles, he's going to set them to do what for the, for the church? To, to go out confessing the gospel, to give out the Lord's gifts, right? So they, in that sense, they are the, uh, Paul calls Peter, James, and John the pillars of the church. So the initial, the initial apostles in the early church that's this role of leading, shepherding, the, shepherding God's people in the early church. So that's the, that's the best kind of interpretation that I read of this verse um, in the commentaries. So then he goes from that kind of like general description to he starts to hone in on, on Peter specifically. He says, Simon, Simon, which is gonna kind of prick his ear because he hasn't been called Simon in a while, especially by Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave him the new name. Jesus called him Peter. You are Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. And now he calls him Simon. What? Right? Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What? There's this, where, where is this conversation happening? Where Satan is demanding to have, and by the way, you there, Satan demanded to have you. You is, is plural. So he's talking, he says Simon, but then he says, so imagine like Simon standing here and then all the, all the disciples were like around him, right? So he's talking to his disciples, but specifically to Peter as well. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Where has there been a conversation between Satan and God that desires to sift someone? Job. There's to be a lot of Job connections in this next few verses. So we see this desire of, of the devil to go after the disciples. And then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, singular. So he's, now he's back to just Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I think I have a handout on my question here. Yeah, or a question on my handout. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So verse 32 on your handout, if Jesus of all people, So not just a random guy, but if Jesus prayed for Peter's faith not to fail, we know that it didn't, right? Because who's the one who gives faith? So when Jesus is like praying for something, he's not just praying like that something might happen. The odds, you could say the odds are quite increased when Jesus wants something to occur, right? So Jesus is praying for Peter's faith not to fail. Then we know that this is, this is purely Pastor Clemmer's speculation here. So you can disagree with me on this, but I, I just thought this was interesting. So you have Jesus praying that Peter's faith would not fail. And yet what happens with Peter? Like Jesus is about to predict it. What does Peter actually do? He denies him not once, not twice, three times. So when, but when Peter is denying Jesus, is his faith gone No but what is Peter acting like He's acting like a sinner <laughs> He's scared He's being he's being overrun by his fear which is driving him to to say foolish things and do stupid things which is the Christian experience I I mention this because we don't want to we don't want to we shouldn't think that to sin is to not have faith. That's just wrong. So if Peter, when Peter denies Jesus three times, and if we were to think that because of that he lost his faith, then we should big time despair anytime we sin in any way, right? So rather the Christian experience is not that we do not sin, or that the mark of the, of the one with faith. The life of the one with faith is not sinlessness, but it's when we sin, we know where to run for forgiveness. When we get bitten by the ants, we know who to call for, right? So you see the difference in in trying to think that, oh man, no, I think uh, when Peter denied Jesus three times, he, he lost his faith. Well, how... I just don't, faith doesn't seem to work that way in the scriptures, because that's operating under the assumption that a person with faith does not sin. And that's not the case. F- f- sinlessness does not, is not the description of a person's faith. But rather, a person with faith runs to Jesus when they sin. See? Um, when, you, and then he says, so... I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So my handout asks, how does when you have turned again inform our understanding of the relationship between faith and sin? When you have turned again, is that, what, what, what does that bring to mind? What word is turned? Repent. It's the same Greek word here. When you have turned again. When you have repented. So metanoia is change of mind, epistrepho has the same idea of turning body, this is the epistrepho here, so it's not the same metanoia, but it's often used interchangeably with repentance. Again, repentance being not, so this is, I'm living my life of sin, and then I'm going to repent and stop sinning. So if you're repenting, if you've repented, then you're not sinning anymore. That would mean, if that were what repentance means, then when Jesus comes and says, repent, what he's saying is, repent. That is, stop living your life in such a way that needs me at all. Because if I can stop sinning, I don't need Jesus. Right? So repentance does not mean to stop sinning, but repentance does mean turning. But it's not turning away from sin, but turning from false idols. So all the false promises that lead us to sin So behind every one of our sins is some sort of an idol that's promising something that we desire or something that gives us peace or we think is going to deliver on joy right so whatever the thing is we're chasing these false idols and then the lord turns us away from the false idols to him who has the nail scars in his hands and forgives us so the christian The Christians being repentant is being turned from the life of sin to be sure, but just chasing after these idols, being turned from a false idol to the living and true God who forgives me. Now, as that turn occurs, I'm also turning away from my sin, but I'm also, I'm still a sinner. And because of that, I tend to turn back. And that's the the ongoing rhythm in the Christian life. And I turn back to my sin thinking it's going to deliver and it doesn't. And God, he repents me, turns me back, right? So to, also for Peter, arguably one of the greatest in, in the early church or the, even the, the church to this day, we see, we see a life of a repentant sinner. Peter is by no means perfect. Get behind me, Satan. Is <laughs> spoken to just Peter, probably to Satan and also to Peter, uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. He has a big, he has a big um, rundown with St. Paul in Galatians. So if you remember, um, it's, it's talked about in like Galatians 2. Uh, it's also referenced in Acts. So Peter is up in like Gal- or, uh, um, Gentile territory. So the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, so they're, they're being grafted into the to people of God. But it would be like, the Jewish people are like, don't eat barbecue. Don't eat pigs, because they're unclean. That's the Jewish people. They've done that their whole life. The Gentiles are eating barbecue, and they're doing it right. It's really awesome. (laughs) But the pigs, (laughs) the bacon-wrapped barbecue, everything. So it's like, great. So, So Peter is up in the Gentile territory with the Gentiles, and they're eating pulled pork sandwiches wrapped in bacon. And then and they, don't, they don't say it in those terms, but I'm sure that's what they're eating. Well, why would they not be eating that? They're eating, they're eating pig, they're eating pork. So when Paul comes up, he has this like Jewish group with him because there, there like, they're preaching the gospel and they're finding the other Christians and they're starting to network the early Christian church. So Peter has these Jews with, or Paul has Jews with him. He comes up into Gentile territory and they walk into the barbecue restaurant where Peter's sitting with all the Gentiles eating barbecue. And when that, as soon as, when Paul walks in, Peter jumps up and like wipes off his face and takes off the bib and acts like he's not doing anything wrong. Which, so he wasn't doing anything wrong, but that behavior created so much confusion for everyone. Because he, he wasn't just a random dude, he was Peter. So now Peter being, so, so is it right or wrong eating, be, eating p- barbecue pork? So he just confused, he confused, all the, he confused all the Gentiles who didn't know anything better. And he confused all the Jews that they shouldn't be eating barbecue. And so then Paul says, I confronted Peter to his face. So he, they had this like public fight. Now, interestingly there, as a, as a side note, I did a paper on this at seminary. I was curious, like how did, because I think the role of the Pope, Peter as the first, well, in the, as far as authority in the Christian church history goes, it would be the Pope, but without all the baggage that we know from the Reformation, like the leader of the Christian church. Like, how did that go down with Paul like disagreeing publicly with Peter? And some would say, well, Peter's a sinner like anyone else. So they, that's how it worked out. There's a, there's a helpful conversation there. Some of the early church fathers, though, argue that the whole thing was a planned interaction to teach the point about pork. Like, come on. I don't know, like, that's pretty, a that's pretty elaborate scheme, trying to get who off the hook? Peter, because we're trying to protect the infallibility of Peter, right? So that's interesting. That, that might've been way out of your uh, interest level there, but I had to justify all those hours I put into that paper and I just did. So thank you for indulging me. Uh, let's see here. Strengthen your brothers. So when you, when, when you have turned again, when you have repented, strengthen your brothers. So how does Job, so going back to the Job analogy, is, is Job attacked by the devil? Yes or no? Most certainly. Is Job... Um, repented through this process? And if so, how? What's Job's biggest problem? Does he have one at all? I have the luxury of having looked through this like literally a couple hours ago, so it's fresher on my mind than yours. I was just curious if you might remember. So Job, his biggest thing is that he's like despairing about God. Why? questioning God's decision-making. That's the big thing toward the end. And that's why God goes after him and says, Who, where were you when I built the earth? Surely you know why the mountains are where they are. Since says, you know so much, Job. since says, you're gonna tell me how to do my job. That's ultimately God's critique of Job. Uh, so the, but the repentance then for Job is to simply throw up his hands and say, you're right. I'm not in charge here, you know what's best and the Lord gives him this gift. It's actually a pretty cool gift. The Lord restores all of, all of what he lost, except for, what does he not get? He, so he, so he, starts off as, he starts off the book of Job with like 7,000 goats, 7,000 sheep, uh, 12 or twelve or seven, maybe seven kids. Maybe seven of each, like seven boys and girls, a big number of children. But the children all die, and the sheep and the goats all die. And at the end of the book of Job, he actually gets back double sheep, double goats, but he's then given the gift of the exact same number of children. Why not double? i Mrs. Job. Mrs. <laughs> Job? <laughs> that's, that's a great answer. Why? That's right. Because the, the kids who have died are not gone. They're just in a different place. They didn't disappear. they're just waiting. See? I mean, that's a great comfort for us who lose loved ones. They're not. So to, to, to replace them by double is to say that they no longer exist. No, they exist. they're just not here. Anyway. So Job is restored, but then Job is sent to then make sacrifices. For all those, the entire book of Job, which is like a thousand chapters long, it's this constant interaction between like his bad friends who are really giving really terrible advice. And it's just, Job, God's doing this to you because you're a loser. Uh, you don't believe God like you should. Maybe you did something wrong. Surely if you were really faithful, God wouldn't be doing this to you, like really bad advice. And the, God takes Job and he uses Job to, to he, he sacrifices for those bad friends and he turns those bad friends from their bad understanding to a proper understanding of God's grace and mercy. That is the way in which he restores his friends. So for Peter, when Peter is repented, how does Peter strengthen his brothers? So first, who are his brothers? The other disciples, those guys who are right there, Jesus is talking to him right now about how the devil wants to sift you like wheat. He calls out Peter in front of everybody. Right, he's gonna go after you, you're gonna fall. When you come back, you're gonna restore your brother. How does, he, how does he strengthen the disciples? When we think about strengthening things in, with regard to spiritual stuff, what do we describe as being strengthened? Their abs, their faith. But last time I checked, people don't strengthen people's faith, who does? The Holy Spirit, God strengthens faith, right? Faith comes by hearing. It's a gift. How does God strengthen faith? What does he use? His word. Coming, come. So what is the primary thing that Peter then uses to strengthen his brothers? The proclamation of Jesus from the dead. And that's exactly what we see take place. So, Right when, Jesus, right, right when Peter... Uh, acknowledges what he's done wrong. He is, he is repented by Jesus. Jesus sets him to be a shepherd. And then Peter go, gets after right off the bat. He goes out tearing through the book of Acts, proclaiming the gospel. And as the gospel is preached, especially like his famous sermon in Acts 2, when like 3,000 people become Christians in a single sermon, right? That's doing the strengthening. It's God doing the strengthening through the, through the preached gospel. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, you're right. (laughs) I tell you, Peter, so now he's back to Peter. So Peter calling into mind his office. Um, So remember, because when when Jesus set him to be an apostle, he changes his name from Simon to Peter. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. This day, that specific word there is better translated, will not, the rooster will not crow today. It's the same thing that Jesus says to the thief on the cross. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So it's like said in contrast. So now we got Peter failing him and kind of this despairing use of what's happening today to this joyful, encouraging, peaceful thing that Jesus is gonna say to the thief on the cross. You will deny me three times, that you know me so we can we have this this is an example of great hope for repentance after the greatest of sin and shame so when uh, unfortunately we we can fall into tremendous temptations that lead us into great sin and shame and what the devil then comes and does with that is it, it drives us into despair and hopelessness and from that comes self-harm and unbelief. And so really in the catechism, Luther is right over it. He's like, we, we pray that we would be preserved from sin, not because like we're hoping that if we don't sin, then we'll go to heaven. That's not the, that's not the, we go into to heaven because Jesus died. The problem is as long as I'm on earth, my sin gets me into big trouble. It hurts. It promises that it's not gonna hurt. And then it hurts, not just me, but other people. And then the consequence of that sin and, and it becomes guilt and shame. So the, the thought of dragging guilt and shame for past sins through my whole life is just this despairing picture, right? So, uh, but what's great here is that despite great sins, it's not that there are sins that disqualify us from forgiveness. It's a basic aphorism, a basic saying, that, There's no sin too great for Jesus to forgive, right? And yet, and I've I've engaged with people like this where they've done some tremendous great thing and they actually think that God won't forgive me, right? This particular thing is worse than everybody else, which is kind of an honor to everybody else. Like everyone else is so much better than me. They think their sin is so bad, Um, but no. There's no sin that's too great for Jesus to forgive, right? All means all, takes all the sins away. Especially Peter here, who specifically denies Jesus. He's just said that he would go to death and he doesn't do it. He denies that he even knows Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Repents him, forgives him. Three times he forgives him, actually. Because Jesus, or because Peter denied him three times, Jesus forgives him. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times he asks him. To, to double down on the denials. All right, that gets through the first half of the first page of our handout. <laughs> any questions there? Any thoughts or questions about repentance or any of that? All right, so you got the picture there at the top. Is, this, is a P- Peter there warming himself at the, by the fire? You got the rooster there in the background, Jesus being hauled off for trial. Um, but he's there with the guards and you see the, the lady next to him saying, Hey, you weren't you, weren't you there? And that's all just about to happen. We're not going to get to it today, but I mean, literally it's in the next like hour because everything's going to start moving really quickly here. Uh, verse 35, chapter two, verse 35. And when, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said Nothing. Remember, that was when Jesus had sent out the disciples earlier, like half, a book of, half the book of Luke ago. He sent them out to proclaim the gospel. And he said, When you go, don't take any of this stuff. And the people, wherever you go, are going to provide for you. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Buy a sword now? This is weird. What do you mean? For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors. We'll come back to that. But first, let's deal with the sword business. So why the transition? I, I, I never even noticed it really before. Usually at this point, you're getting so excited. Like you go from, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. You want to see the prayers, the betrayal, the cru- our, our eyes are on the crucifixion, but we miss this little piece about, so earlier in the ministry, I sent you out without bringing a money bag or an extra pair of sandals or something, but now if you have a money bag, take it. And if you don't have a sword, it's worth selling your coat to to grab a sword. Now we don't, we shouldn't think here that for Jesus to say buy a sword is to say that the kingdom, that God is gonna be a kingdom of violence. We know that that's not the case because just in a couple seconds from now, when, whenever they come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword and he slices off Malchus's ear and Jesus says, put it away. The kingdom is not gonna be by way of violence, right? And we've got, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, at least seven different accounts in the book of Acts where the disciples are met with violence and they do not respond in violence. They never actually use swords in the kingdom. So it's not that, that Jesus is encouraging violence in their mission. Uh, they offer no resistance uh, in this, when they are met with violence. But rather, here's what the commentary says. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, the disciples were protected, provided for physically. So being with Jesus is pretty handy. Like when you get, a, when you get like an ingrown toenail, you're gonna just kind of get next to Jesus and kind of just touch him. Just so it goes away, you know, but you don't—you don't get hungry when you're Jesus, right? It just kind of takes care of all these problems. But now that Jesus is gone, the the God's provision is not going to be as immediate. Now they have to plan and prepare more carefully and take precautions as they work in the ministry. So I thought that was a pretty helpful. Description of what Jesus is getting at here he is that as you're now going to be set in this world You're gonna to have to actually be wise you have to be savvy. You have to be mindful You have a plan ahead You have to know that evil's out there gonna go after you and they do go after them There's hostility both the hostility of Satan and the world is about to be unleashed on them But they're not to become a kingdom of violence There's a difference though in being a kingdom of violence and still a kingdom that's willing to protect protect themselves protect themselves by way of precautions. Yeah. They're also going to be taking the sword of the Lord the Word of God. Yeah, that's good, I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah the, the weapon that the church wields is the word, versus the, the weapon that the, 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 the Lord's government is supposed to wield the sword. But the church doesn't wield the sword, and yet here Jesus does tell them to buy a sword. Um, but yeah, that's anyway. That's the, the best description that I saw. Is simply that the church, we have to be. You have to think ahead. And so, in, practically speaking, now 2,000 years later, we do. We have, we budget, right? We have to we have to make sure we have enough stuff to kind of get through the next few months or whatever the thing with whatever the thing is. We have to be mindful that hey, you know what's not cool uh, when these crazy people are coming into churches and shooting people when they're trying to receive the Lord's gifts. Okay, yeah, when, when, if I get shot, the Lord's gonna call me, call me home, that's great. Um, but also, can, you, can the ushers just maybe keep an eye on the back door and make sure no one comes in with a machine gun? And if they do, you know, let us know. Well, obviously, this is a terrible situation that many churches, unfortunately, have gone through. But that's not to say we open the back doors and say, come on in, fellas, and mow us down but we can actually take precautions to make sure that our people are kept safe, see? So maybe there's some analogy there as well. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. This is the final prediction of Jesus of his crucifixion before he's crucified. And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's quoted from Isaiah 53:12. 12. We always read it on Good Friday, the long list describing the suffering servant being crucified for what is written about me has its fulfillment." So if there's, any, if there's any confusion that Jesus was actually claimed to be the promised Messiah, he just removed all doubt. I mean, I mean, for you and me, for those who would argue that, oh, in the Bible, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. This is it. Because he said, he quotes from Isaiah, and he, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He's talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah. Then he says, what was written about not the suffering servant, but what was written about me, Jesus says. So he's, he's, he's connecting the two quite clearly and explicitly for the disciples. And in response to him, to so Jesus just saying, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. And you know, these, these guys knew their Bibles pretty well. They have most of it memorized. So Jesus saying and he was numbered with the transgressors. That would have been a very well-known text for the disciples. Then he says, "What's written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus has given me the context of the suffering servant. Not, a, not one of his bones will be broken, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the stuff from this, the, the, the lamb led, as a lamb is led to the slaughter, all that stuff from Isaiah 53. And in response, the disciples say, look, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> and Jesus says, I've had enough. Are you guys? That's really, that's what he's, Jesus is like, ah. <laughs> that's, that's what he's saying. You, still, you guys still don't get it. And we know they don't. They don't get it at the night of the crucifixion. They actually don't even get it the day of the resurrection. It takes it until Jesus walks into the locked room with his hands and he says, peace be with you. They don't even believe it Easter morning because they don't actually see the resurrected Jesus. The disciples are still kind of bumbling around figuring this thing out on Easter morning. So they don't get in, and that way we, we, I mean, we're, we're like them in a lot of ways with our, with our doubts and our stubbornness of heart at times. So very quickly, the Jesus was, we got two minutes. Um, Jesus is number with the transgressors. So on your handout on the front page, it did I've got the question there in the picture, did Jesus become a sinner? Did Jesus become a sinner? Yeah, I really offended Grandma Gretchen, who's now with Jesus back in Colorado um, I said this was one of my first Bible studies at a seminary. So Jesus became a sinner. And she said, no, because you're trying to hold up Jesus. Well, I'm not saying that Jesus sinned. It's actually essential to point out that Jesus did not sin. Why? Because Jesus is fulfilling perfect humanity in our place. He keeps the law fully for us. He has to be perfect without sin. So in that sense, he does not do sins but he becomes a sinner. He has to fully take our place. So when he's nailed on the cross between the thieves, only one kind of person is nailed on these crosses and it's sinners and they're right above their head what their offense is. So Jesus is put in the place where only sinners go and faces the thing that only sinners have to face, death. Right? It's essential for him to do this because he's doing it in our place. So he takes, as Luther calls it the, the great exchange or the sweet swap. He takes all of our sin, absorbs it into himself, and he becomes the sinner that all of us are. Not in the sense, again, that he's doing sin, but because he is, it's all attributed to him. And then in the same way, the, the, the analogy work goes both ways. In the same way, all of his holiness and righteousness and eternal life is given to us but if we don't do anything to deserve it. How can that possibly be mine? It's given to me and the same way that my sin is given to Jesus, is exchanged on the cross. So in that way, Jesus is a sinner. He becomes a sinner without, without like compromising his perfection because he has to be perfect to, to ultimately take our place. Uh, any questions there, thoughts on Jesus? That makes sense? So don't go off posting something on your blogs that Pastor Klimmer said that Jesus isn't, wasn't perfect because he sinned. That's not what I said. Don't try to get me taken up on charges. But Jesus takes our place as sinners. Yes, sir? The Isaiah quotation clarifies that he bore our sin in Oh, nice! That's it. transgressor. Yeah, so, so he bore our sin. So, so there's this, this picture of our All of our sin is laid on his back. The picture of Jesus kind of being weighed down by these things. So that's even a clearer picture from Isaiah, that all of our sin is taken off of us and laid on his back and weighing him down. Thank you. Thank you. It's like you've taught on this before. Very good. Anything else? Well, very good. Well, next, uh, so uh, welcome to our, to our new members once again. I look forward to bringing you into, into membership later this morning. Next week, we'll, we'll look to wrap up chapter 22 and get into the arrest of Jesus. And then we'll take a break. Uh, I'll take a break from Luke for December. And Pastor Schumacher will jump in on the names of, the names of Jesus uh, for the month of December. The Lord be with you. Scandinavian tradition, you will never hear the word divine service or stains.